0: It's 1999 in Baltimore, Maryland, and He-Min Lee, who's a popular high school senior, disappeared from school one day. Six weeks later, detectives arrest her classmate and ex-boyfriend, Adnan Syed, for her murder. He says he's innocent, though he can't exactly remember what he was doing that January afternoon. And this is the premise of the NPR podcast called Serial. It's one story, a true story, told week by week. And with each new episode comes new information and new perspectives from people who say they knew what Adnan was up to that day. And when I listened to this podcast for the first time in 2014, with each new episode, I changed my hypothesis on what had actually taken place in this story. One week I would be convinced that Adnan was a hurt and vengeful ex-boyfriend who carried out a premeditated murder, and the next week I would wholeheartedly believe that he was only a bewildered bystander who could have never committed this crime for which he was framed. And most good mysteries have this quality, they keep you guessing about what really happened. So, as my friend Katie and I listened to this podcast and we talked about each new episode and what we thought the true story was, we began to draw parallels between secular stories we find intriguing and what that means for how we share the gospel. If the ways in which the story of Adnan Syed are told can sway us so drastically in the span of a 40 minute episode, how much more then? Does it matter how we communicate the story of Jesus Christ? The way we tell a story matters. And the most compelling story that we share with the world is the one we write by living. Are the stories that our lives tell stories that communicate the love of Christ? Scripture has quite a few things to tell us about love. But perhaps one of the most well-known and quoted verses on love is found in John's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Listen now for the word of the Lord. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be be to God. God. This seems pretty straightforward. Just love each other. But the command's not that simple, nor is it open for interpretation. Did you catch it? It's not love one another however you can, or even love one another how you best see fit in the moment. The command is clear, just as I have loved you, you should also love one another. So how exactly are we to keep this commandment? The scripture tells us what Jesus explicitly meant if we're really paying attention. If we're going to be faithful readers of this text, we have to zoom out a bit and see what else is happening around these two verses. Because the whole of John chapter 13 presents us with an important look on discipleship. This whole chapter focuses on what it means to belong to Jesus, to be his own. And perhaps the most intimate portrait of belonging to Jesus is being seated at the table with him. So we back up a few verses to the Passover meal shared in the upper room. Surely we won't forget the importance of this night. Scripture tells us in verse 1 that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were not in the world, he loved them to the end. We know what happens next. Jesus got up from the table, took off his outer robe and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. And after he had washed their feet, had put on his robe, and returned to the table, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? I have set you an example that you should do as I have done to you. (coughs) The disciples had been with Jesus for some time now. They had watched him serve and show kindness to others. They'd watched him heal and feed and acknowledge and include. So why is this moment, this beautiful act of service from teacher to followers, why is this particular encounter so poignant? This command to love, it wasn't new to the disciples, because the command to love is at the heart of the Torah. They would have known the words of Deuteronomy 6, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. They would have known what was written in Leviticus 19, not to bear a grudge against anyone but to love your neighbor as yourself. What is significant about this commandment from Jesus is that it is a commandment to embody the kind of love that proceeds from the Incarnation. The incarnation, God becoming flesh, it's integral to John's entire gospel. If you remember, that's how this book started. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Of all the ways this gospel could have begun, John's writer chose to begin with the incarnation, with the truth that God is not distant, but that God became like us. God granted us access and intimacy and relationship that God deeply desires for us to claim our identity as God's own people. God reveals God's self to humanity in the person of Christ. And this is God's very nature. God gives God's self because that's who God is. We see this nature communicated in the interpersonal relationships of the Trinity. That each of the three persons gives themselves completely in love for the sake of the other. This self-giving love, it defines the relationship between God and Christ. And now, as Jesus' own, we are invited to participate in that same love. This self-giving love, it's the mark of discipleship because it's the sign of abiding in Christ. It's not enough to talk about Jesus call to the disciples as simply an instruction to be humble or to offer the occasional act of service. The example that Jesus set for them by assuming the role of a slave as he washed their feet, it was not only unusual, it was countercultural. In the 1st century, every decision a person made was motivated by what helped them acquire honor and what helped them avoid shame. And there were very specific rules for what brought about honor and what brought about shame. In addition to things outside of one's control like family name and bloodline, there were also choices about how to behave in order to avoid unclean things and people who naturally would taint one's honor. Bruce Molina helps us understand the New Testament world a little bit better and particularly gives us a clearer understanding of what it meant for this rabbi to clean dirty feet. He explains that purity rules in general deal with places and times for everything and everyone, with everyone and everything in its proper place and time. Purity rules are much concerned with dirt. Garden dirt in the backyard is in its proper place. But when that same dirt gets into the house, the house is considered dirty, defiled, unclean, and impure. Dirt is a way of speaking of something out of place. Understanding this system of how purity affects one's honor, which in turn affects the quality of life, it gives a deeper meaning to the example Jesus set and the command that he gave. Jesus wasn't just saying you should occasionally inconvenience yourself to do a nice thing for someone else. Jesus was saying you have to be willing to forego status and acceptance and livelihood for the sake of communicating the gospel. He's saying this is what self-giving love looks like. It's altogether different from the expectations of this world. And it's the standard to which you're being called, if you're going to belong to me. If you're going to be my disciples, you're going to have to literally get your hands dirty. In thinking about loving others the way that Christ loved, of loving with a self-giving love, our minds may immediately jump to the cross. After all, is this act not the pinnacle of pouring out self for the sake of others. For human beings surrendering one's life it's the ultimate act of self-giving. And for this gift from Christ we are eternally grateful. And what if the type of love to which Jesus calls the church is not in giving up our lives but in giving away our lives? What if loving one another as Christ has loved us isn't solely about sacrifice, but grace? Jesus gives his life, and it's an expression of the fullness of his relationship with God. It's the highest expression of self-giving love, which characterizes the Trinity. The motivation for Jesus' love, it's not self-denial the motivation is living out this true identity even though it leads to suffering and death. Jesus' death was not the goal. It was a politically motivated execution. It was the consequence of living out his life aligned with the will of God, and in first century Rome, that meant living in such a way that threatened the power of the empire, and that meant death. So Jesus' sacrifice is that even in knowing the risk, he chooses to love anyway. Jesus puts no limits on his love. And this, this is the mark of discipleship. To love one another is to live into our vocation fully. To live a life shaped by a love that knows no limits. A love whose expression brings us into truer relationship with our creator and sustainer. To live in such a way brings about a new concept of the possibility of community. So what could this community of disciples marked by a self-giving love look like? Because if we're going to truly follow Jesus, our theology has to become practical what we believe has to become what we do. And I think that begins with authenticity. Genuine love cannot be manipulated. It's the difference between truly loving others and simply behaving like we do. Parents of littles, maybe this hits close, home, close to home for you. How often do you... Encourage your children to love with prompts like share with your sister or say you're sorry. But aren't we adults the same way? We know how to behave in loving ways. We know what we should do. We know how to donate goods and write checks to charitable organizations. We know how to check philanthropy off our to do lists. But what does it take for us to truly love with authenticity? How do we cultivate our hearts to grieve with the heartbroken, to celebrate with the joyful, to care for the struggling, to not only resist oppression, but to combat it? Only through the Holy Spirit can we become genuine cupbearers for each other. We aren't being called to will ourselves to be more holy from our own strength, Rather, we are invited to abide in the heart of Christ where there is no limit to the depth of genuine love. So, my question for you is What story are others hearing when they encounter the story of your life? Are they hearing a story that reflects the same love to which Christ calls us? This is the story. That we are to live and the reason that a story is so captivating is because at its core it communicates some truth about the human condition think about your favorite movie a book you love or a song that you could listen to over and over you probably love it because of the story it tells and if i had to guess The story it tells resonates with something within your own story. The reason that I found the serial podcast so compelling is that it made me consider some of my own experiences in which there may be multiple perspectives or accounts of what happened. But the key is that how we tell the story matters because our storytelling, it directly affects how the hearer understands the truth. And surely this doesn't mean that we always get it right. G.K. Chesterton wrote, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. We know we'll never be perfect this side of eternity, but that shouldn't scare us away from seeking to live more like Christ in all we say and do. There are many times, maybe even many times this week that we've had the best of intentions of being loving and there are places where we fell short and both exist in the same space. As Christ followers, we love regularly and we fail regularly and church should be a safe place for us to fail because seeking to love and failing is better than not trying to love at all. Morgan Harper Nichols writes, The reason why a good story draws us in is because it helps reflect back to us the goodness in our own stories. How can we live a good story? A story that guides others to reflect back to the goodness of God at work in their own stories. I think this is the result of making sure that our life stories contain plot lines packed with actions of Christ-like love. Writing our stories with the pen of self-giving love, that's the Christian ideal. That's what it means to be a disciple. In the name of Christ.